place and the optics of class struggle. Quoting Lessing from Minna von Barnhelm. Certainly my fair miss, the police want to know everything, especially secrets. This observation can easily be carried over to inner political enmities, fears and struggles. Enlightenment is written in good part, psycho-historically, as a history of political fear and its emotional and practical strategic offspring, suspicion and mistrust, control and subversion, surveillance and secret, criminalization and outrage. Those who nurse suspicion can become collectors in a black, in the multiple senses, secret, polemical, anarchist, directed at the bad, empiricism, I'll read that line again without the parentheses, those who nurse suspicion can become collectors in a black empiricism. On the side of the wielders of power, rulers, administrators, police, stooges, denouncers, on the side of the critics of power, revolutionaries, rebels, deviants, dissidents, each of the two sides, properly speaking they are not mere sides as in a symmetrical relation, but classes, superior and inferior, master and servant, ruler and oppressed, the asymmetry would play a significant role in a moral evaluation, but that is not our concern here. Each of the two sides views the opponent through spectacles of suspicion. Organs of state and representatives of hegemonic powers watch out for subversive, oppositional, deviant forces in the domain of their subjects, fueled by a worry that a conspiracy could be formed that gives expression to a will to change. The oppositional powers, by contrast, keep a transcript of the immoralism of the ruling power, of its capricious acts, infringements of justice, its corruptness and decadence. In times of open polemical tension, a mutual curiosity to investigate can be spurred on by an element of enmity that inevitably, but more or less manifestly, clings to every domination. Both, although asymmetrically, are moved by a specific will to know that seeks to expose the political opponent in his nakedness. We know that Louis XIV maintained a complicated network of palace espionage, that spies had to inform him of his courtier's every move, every secret word, and every possible ulterior motive, especially about the activities of peers, the great men of the realm, that is, potential rivals and aspirants to the throne. Since then, the incumbents of power have infinitely extended and refined the system of surveillance of the other candidates and participants in power. Modern societies are permeated with organs of self-reconnaissance. In the time of Napoleon I, the police had stocked the Fouché archive with files on all persons of actual or virtual political significance. The networks of the Russian secret police in the late 19th century traversed not only Russia itself, but all countries in which Russian immigrants lived. The cross-examination to which members of the public services are subjected have today become unquestioned routine. All power apparatuses derive their right to fight against subversion from the principle of self-preservation. Quote, Understandably enough, I am thinking of internal security. 
of the internal protection of our state from subversion, by which I understand the undermining of economies of, of, <laughs> sorry, by which I understand the undermining by enemies of the constitution. End quote. Of course, the secret style of this inner political reconnaissance contains a certain risk of paranoia that is fundamentally related to a disturbance in the reciprocal relation of seeing and being seen. Being seen without being able to see belongs to the standard motifs of delusion, persecution, just as, conversely, seeing without being seen can slip into seeing ghosts. Political self-reconnaissance in modern societies is not precisely covered by today's concept of the police and its circle of duties, but is approximately covered by that of the police in the 17th and 18th centuries when the concept was conceived more broadly. This also had something to do with a change in the structure of social opposition. After the disappearance of feudal absolutism and the emergence of political parties, political opposition became partially decriminalised. From then on, not every opponent or rival had to be suspected of being a threat. With the emergence of the party system in the 19th century, a situation arose in which constitutions and parliaments offered competing power groups a stage for self-representation. With the public institutionalisation of the opposition as counterpart to the government, a dimension of inner social reconnaissance was more or less abolished. In this system, the opponent takes over a part of the work that otherwise would have been done by informers, without the latter becoming unemployed, but the domain of secrecy is displaced. Now the opponent himself must say what he thinks, what he plans, what his means are, and how strong his following is. Parliamentary systems do, in fact, have the advantage of lessening political paranoia through daily contact with the opponent, integration through collaboration, trust through division of powers and transparency. Of course, the lessening is only partial, because with a legal opposition, the problem of subversion is displaced. Political fear now hovers around the possibility that changes in the system could take place gradually under the protection of legality, or worse still in the underground, in the extra-parliamentary sphere, outside the transparent official oppositions. For this reason, multi-party states also suffer, and not infrequently, from political paranoia e.g. McCarthyism. Black empiricism also knows the converse perspective. It keeps its eye on the bloody or crooked finger of the powerful. With a frequently justified suspicion, it inverts the principle of legitimation. It asks not only on which principles, which right its power based on, but also which rights the powerful infringe in their exercise of power. What is hidden behind the veil of legality? What drives this polemical curiosity is a political trauma, to have been exposed without prote protection to the legitimate, but brutal, painful, oppressive force and violence of others, the power of parents, disciplinary force, political, military, police, executive force, and violence, sexual violence and coercion. The trauma gives birth to a critical attitude. It's a priori, never again be struck, never again swallow offences without resisting, never again, if possible, allow a hegemonic power to do violence to us. This critical stance is allied at its origins with Jewish kinicism against the arrogance of the more powerful. They may boast, they may present themselves as the legitimate power, 
but at the core of their exercise of power is always naked force, partly arrogant, partly hypocritical. This critique tends towards wanting to wring from the ruling powerful confessions of their violence and immorality. It comes down to an inversion of the police and espionage, anti-police, social espionage, reconnoitering of the li- reconnoitering the lion's den, exposure of the wolves and sheep's clothing by the humbled and insulted. Since the 18th century, there has been in Europe a strong current of such critical empiricism of power, especially in the form of literary shadowing of the powerful. Early on, Enlightenment began to denounce the excessive sexual proclivities of the despots, to attack the unscrupulousness of the courtiers and ministers who secure their careers by taking advantage of the wild pleasure principle of the rulers. Recall the cynical courtier Marinelli in Lessing's Emilia Galotti, the graphic masterpiece of German political psychology in the 18th century. Such a critique really provides naked truth. It shows the powerful in their despicableness, artfulness, egocentricity, lust, addiction to extravagance, lack of conscience, unreasonableness, greed for profit, misanthropy, duplicity. Earlier, the religious, ascetic Kinnock cast this gaze on the excessively worldly lifestyle of their time, then the bourgeois intelligentsia on the morbid aristocracy. Later, the morally aggressive part of the workers' movement on the, on the overstuffed imperialist bourgeoisie, and most recently, anarchism and the anti-authoritarian movements on the state and the wielding of power per se. The dynamic of such research impulses can still be demonstrated in the modern social sciences. In them, the rulers and the ruled, the wielders of power and oppositional powers, observe each other in order to rationally objectify their political mistrust. <laughs>